Good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 7. If you're new to the scriptures and you turn almost at the center of your Bibles, you will be in Isaiah or very close to Isaiah. When we first started this beginning, the, the series of studies, I, uh, I mentioned that the first five chapters of the book have to do with Israel's circumstances. Chapter 6 has to do with the call of Isaiah. Now we've come to a new section, chapters 7 through 12, that are concerned mostly with one of Judah's kings, a king by the name of Ahaz, of whom we'll learn more in a moment. Chapters 7, 8, and 9 are about little children. There are three of them, I believe. One is named Shir Jashub. He is, uh, he was Isaiah's eldest son. Another is named Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Uh, that's one cut above name, naming your son Sue, I suppose. As we'll see, there's a reason for that uh, odd and rather lengthy name. But uh, he was Isaiah's second son, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And then there is a third little child, an enigmatic, mysterious figure, who is referred to as Emmanuel. He turns up in chapter 7, and then we read more of Emmanuel in chapter 9, where we're told that every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. That is, we ain't going to study war no more. There will be no more conflict, no more warfare. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. This is our once and coming king, as we will see. Now let's read uh, through a portion of chapter 7, verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jatham, son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, and of the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart, and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabiel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim, that's another term for Israel, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people, 
The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Now, it's necessary in a chapter like this to get historical. And I know for some people, history is not at all interesting. Most of us slept through History 101. And uh, we grew up believing that the Louisiana Purchase is a new Cajun restaurant in town. And uh, the Plymouth Compact is a new small car. And uh, Reconstruction is something that they're doing to Fairview these days. But uh, history is very important, particularly when we talk about uh, the scriptures, because these things happened in time and space. They happened in history. The Bible is not a book of speculative philosophy. It is a book about things that actually occurred. Uh, Paul, in talking to Festus, the Roman procurator, said, You know about these things. He's referring to redemptive history, our Lord's coming, his death, his burial, his resurrection. He said, Festus, you are an educated man. You're a learned man. You know these things. They were not done in a corner. In other words, these things are not hidden away. They actually happened uh, in the world of uh, time and space. We They saw these things occurring. So we need to know what, what was happening. Now, at this time, there were four major political powers. Uh, in the in the Near East, off to the east of Israel was the nation of Assyria. Assyria had been uh, really not uh, much of a force until just a few years before the events are described here in chapter seven. But about two years before before Isaiah appeared and and uh, rendered this uh, prophecy, uh, a man by the name of Tiglath Pileser III came to the to the throne of Assyria. And he had expansionist tendencies, and he defeated the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians and the Elamites. And then he started toward the west. And in time, he conquered all of Syria, the area today that we know as Lebanon, Palestine, and even Egypt. And at the point that this story begins, Assyria is beginning to march toward the rest, uh, toward the west. And uh, the little nations uh, along the Mediterranean, the people that lived in Syria and in Palestine and Egypt and Edom and Philistia were beginning to panic. And they were forming various unions to try to defend themselves against the Assyrians. And the Syrians and the Israelites uh, formed a pack, a, a defensive pack, and tried to force Judah into it. Now, Syria is uh, 
uh, ancient Syria is located where, where modern-day Syria is located, and Damascus was the capital then, and Damascus is the capital today. It's just noted, if you look on a map, it's just a little bit to the northeast of, uh, of the land of Palestine. The king of Syria at this time was a man named Rezin, or Retzin, as the Hebrew puts it. You can remember that because that's the ingredient that goes into breath mints, uh, Retzin. Uh, he was the king of uh, Syria. We don't know much about him. He's mentioned in uh, Syrian histories. We know he was a real person, but uh, we really don't know much about this, uh, about this individual. Israel was the nation immediately to the north of Judah, in the northern part of Palestine. In the 9th century, uh, pardon me, 10th century B.C., uh, Israel had broken away from the southern kingdom of Judah and formed a separate uh, nation. Uh, composed of ten of Israel's tribes. And the king of the northern kingdom was a na- man named Pika, or Pekka, as uh, probably the correct pronunciation. He's described here as the son of Remaliah. He was a usurper. He was uh, one of the last kings of Israel. He was uh, later assassinated by Hoshea, the last, uh, the last king of the northern kingdom. The king of Judah was a man by the name of Ahaz. He was a very young man. He was in his early 20s, probably 20 or 21. He was very unwise. He was a very ungodly man. He had a godly father, a godly grandfather, a godly great-grandfather. But uh, he himself had turned his back on the Lord. He was an idol worshiper. He had uh, sacrificed his own son at Topheth, the valley just to the south of of, uh, Jerusalem. And uh, uh, he had formed an alliance with Assyria. Now what happened was this. The Syrians, the Israelites panicked. They, they marched down into Judah in order to force Ahaz to join their coalition and to disavow this, uh, this arrangement that he had made with the Assyrians. And what Ahaz did was to continue to cling to this arrangement. He called on the Assyrians, who were a, a kind of a magnum hit force, to come down and deal with the Syrians and the Israelites. And when Syria, under Retzin's leadership, and Israel, under Pekah's leadership, came down into Judah, they decimated the countryside. They sacked and burned most of the small cities of Judah. Ahaz lost 120,000 men in one, in, in one day, one encounter, one battle, and uh, so weakened his army that, that Judah never recovered until the end of their history in 586. They, they really were never able to recapture uh, the strength that they uh, that they formerly had, and as the story opens, as chapter seven opens, the Syrians and the Israelites are probably besieging the city of Jerusalem, or just about to besiege the city of Jerusalem. And Ahaz' situation was not only desperate; it was hopeless. There was no way out, and uh, he was down in the southern part of the city. Rebuilding the defenses, preparing for the siege, and in the process of digging an aqueduct through the solid rock underneath the city of David from the spring of Gihon on the east side uh, through the city to bring the water in inside the uh, walls. He was feverishly making preparations uh, for the siege. And uh, Isaiah shows up. There's Ahaz over overseeing the project, and Isaiah shows up with his little boy by the hand. His little boy was named Shir Jashub. His name in Hebrew means a remnant will return. 
The little boy was a, was a reminder to Ahaz that God had things well in hand. He had promised, uh, remember chapter 6, Chris's exposition of that, that passage. He had, he had promised that there was a holy seed in the stump, that God hadn't given up on Judah, that he was still going to bring his man who would uh, bring salvation, not only to Israel, but uh, to, the whole, uh, to the whole world. And there would always be a hard core of faith, people that clustered around that seed and believed in it. And would hold on to God to the end. This little boy was a symbol of that, uh, of that promise. A remnant will return. Ahaz was thinking that uh, the people of God would be exterminated. Uh, but the little boy was a reminder. No, God was, was still working out his redemptive program. He's still going to bring salvation to the world. He, he has not forgotten you. And uh, he, he, Isaiah addresses himself to, uh, uh, to Ahaz. And he composes a little little poem. Uh, this is what the Lord says. It, it, it'll never take place. It's not going to happen. You see, the Syrians and, and the Israelites were saying, we're going to capture Judah, verse 6. We're going to chop it up into little pieces. And we're going to put our own puppet king. They call him a son of Tabeel. Tabeel means uh, kind of a ne'er-do-well, a do-nothing. Uh, we're going to put the son of Tabeel on the throne, this puppet king. And uh, uh, we're, we're going to dominate Judah. And, and Isaiah says, it'll never happen. He thinks he's going to besiege the city of Jerusalem and, and, and conquer uh, the, the town. No, he says, it, it'll never happen. Because, he says, the head of Aram is Damascus. Aram is another word for Syria because they spoke Aramaic, the language Aramaic there. He says, the head of Syria is Damascus. That's the city of man. What, what, what can the city of man do against the city of God? And uh, the head of Damascus is only Retson. Just a man, mere man. Puts his pants on one leg at a time. I mean, why are you afraid of this man when God is on your side? And uh, the head of Ephraim, Israel, is, is Samaria. That's, again, man's city. The head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son, Pekah, this usurper, who has no right to sit on, on the throne. Why are you alarmed? Why are you nervous? Why, why are you so, why have you lost your poise in this situation? Because, he says, verse 8, within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. Now this was, this prophecy was uttered in 734 B.C. Sixty-five years uh, puts us at 670 A.D. In 678, or pardon me, B.C., 670 B.C. In 670 B.C., Ezra Haddon, the king of Assyria, uh, depopulated the countries that were then known as Syria and Israel and scattered those people all over the Middle East. That's why the ten tribes are called the Lost Ten Tribes. No one knows where those people went to. The countries ceased to be even a name on the map. They were literally history. And uh, that's what Isaiah wants uh, Ahaz to know. Don't worry about these smoking firebrands. There is smoke there. But there is no fire, they are no danger, they are mere men. What are mere men in the face of the sovereign Lord, the Lord of hosts? Don't uh, be frightened, hold fast, keep your poise, don't be, don't be afraid because in 65 years these people will be gone. And they were, they were, they ceased to exist. 
after 65 years. Now, if you were in Isaiah's shoes, you would probably be thinking, as I was, I would be thinking, well, okay, yes, yes, see, I probably won't be alive in 65 years. I won't see this happen. I'm not, uh, I don't know how to take this, uh, this word. Very often, God asks us to believe things that are very hard to believe for which there is no evidence. And that's what he's doing at this point. He's saying, just trust me. Just believe me. Don't, don't be nervous. I'm going to take care of this problem. I'm with you, say. Just let me straighten out things my own way. Don't trust Assyria. Don't count on your military might. Don't trust your preparations for the siege. Just believe in me. Hold fast. Hang on. Hang on to me. No evidence that I'm going to come through. Just, just trust me because of the sheer word. Well, now we know that Ahaz was a, was a true unbeliever. And uh, it, it was, uh, Ahaz at this point did not want to believe. And uh, so uh, uh, Isaiah does what God often does for us. He reminds Ahaz that God very much wants us to believe and he'll do anything he can to encourage faith. God is willing to humble himself He's willing to condescend. He's willing to get down on our level to help us to believe. That's what he did in the incarnation. John, in his book, in his gospel, says that Jesus did many miracles. But these are written, he said, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. These are the signs, the miracles that Jesus did, the marvelous things that he did for people's bodies and minds while while he was here. The things that he did in the realm of nature were all signs. They were designed to buttress and reinforce and encourage people's faith. God getting down on, on our level so we can we can believe. And that's what he's doing for Ahaz. He says, just ask for a sign, any sign. As high as heaven, as, as low as Sheol. I don't care what you ask for. Just ask for a sign, anything. I want to, I want to encourage you. And uh, Ahaz says very piously, I will not test the Lord. Well, it sounds good. He's actually quoting scripture. But the reason he didn't want to sign is because he already had his mind made up. He's already decided he was not going to do the will of God. He was not going to trust God. He was going to trust Assyria. He's going to trust his own ability. He was going to trust in the arm of flesh. He was not going to trust God. His mind was made up. He had his own agenda. And no amount of evidence would ever convince him. Uh, which, uh, uh, again, uh, uh, reminds me that, that, uh, that most of us uh, are unbelievers, not because the evidence is not good. The evidence that Jesus lived and taught and died and was buried, rose again, is better than the evidence for any other event in history. And uh, it's credible, but uh, people don't believe it, not because the evidence isn't good, but because they don't want God that close and that personal and interfering that much in their in their plans. The, the issue is never intellectual. Unbelief is never intellectual. It is always moral. It is because we have our own agenda, because we want to go our own way. We have the things we want to do, and that was, that was Ahaz's problem. He had a hard heart. No amount of evidence would convince him. So Ahaz says, all right, uh, you won't ask for a sign. I'll give you one anyway. And it's this wonderful sign. 
of Emmanuel. Notice what he says, verse 13. Here now, you house of David. It's like our word White House, you, you rulers of, uh, of Judah. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And she, literally, will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid will be laid waste. Now let's 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 fix ourselves here in time. Let's understand what's what's being said here. The, Assyri- the Syrians and the Israelites are outside the walls of Jerusalem. This is seven. 34 B.C. And uh, Isaiah predicts that a young woman will conceive and bear a child. It's a common formula in the ancient world to announce the birth of a child. It occurs numerous times in the Old Testament. A woman will conceive and bear a child, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Something unusual about the fact that she names the child, because normally the father did, so we begin to wonder where the father is at this point. The name is highly significant. It means God is with us with the emphasis on the with us. Im is the Hebrew word for with. Nu is the word for us. Imanu means with us is El, is God. With us is God. Very close, very personal, very intimate. God is with us. Furthermore, we're told in chapter 8 that Emmanuel will possess the land. And then a bit later in chapter 9, he's described as the one on whose shoulders the government rests, who is the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And I ask myself, who is this mysterious character? Now, you have to understand that he was he has to live during the time of Ahaz. Do you see how, how the argument flows? Before... He knows enough to choose right and wrong. That is, before he has moral discrimination, before he reaches the age of accountability, that would be age 12 approximately in Jewish Jewish thinking, before this child is 12 years old, the two kings that you dread will be will no longer be a threat. And we say, who is this that he's referring to? Well, some have said that it must be Isaiah's son, Mahershala al-Hashbaz. And it is true that in chapter 8, there seems to be an identification with Mahershala al-Hashbaz and uh, with uh, the one who possesses the land, the prince who rules over the land, Emmanuel. That's a possibility. Others have said that this is the child Hezekiah, uh, Ahaz's child. Remember in the first chapter of the book, we're told that uh, Isaiah ministered under the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Verses or Chapter 7 through 12 deal with Ahaz's reign, and it seems as though from chapter 13 on to the end, we're talking about the period of Hezekiah's reign, and certainly the last few chapters uh, of, of that section, before you get to chapter 40, deal directly with Hezekiah. I'm inclined to think that uh, the young woman here was Ahaz's wife. 
And the child who was to be born was Hezekiah. Uh, There's some problem in the chronology. Some have thought that Hezekiah was already living during this time, that he would have been about six years old, according to to the, the, the chronology, the classic chronology. But the problem is there's about ten years missing out of Hezekiah's life that we can't account for. And if he were six years old at this time, it would mean that Ahaz gave birth to Hezekiah when he was about 11 or 12 or 13 years of age, which is not likely. So for myself, I think he's talking about... Uh, about Hezekiah. And what he's saying is this. This young woman, your, your young woman, Ahaz, she will conceive and she will bear a son. Miracle there. Either in determining the sex of the child or in Isaiah knowing the sex of the child. And before this child is 12 years of age, these two kings will no longer be a threat. All right, this is 734 B.C. Syrians are outside the walls. Things are looking very grim. There's absolutely no way out of this. Ahaz is trapped. One of those impossible situations for which there's no solution, no human solution. Within a couple of weeks, Retzin, the king of Syria, when we know this, by the way, not from Scripture so much as from secular history, Retzin received news that Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, was besieging or marching to Damascus to besiege his city. He broke off the siege of Jerusalem, went back home. The Israelite army was reduced by a considerable number, better than half, and so they broke off the siege and they went back home. So Jerusalem was was free of any threat. There was no longer any siege. This happened within weeks of this prediction. Retzin went back to Damascus. Two years later, the city fell, and Tiglath-Pileser had Retzin killed. And then Tiglath-Pileser marched on to Samaria. There was extended uh, uh, siege of Samaria. And 12 years later, in 722, the city of Samaria fell. And uh, before that, uh, Pekah was assassinated by Hoshea, who was the last of the kings of Israel before the fall of of Samaria in 722, and these two kings were literally history. And it happened within 12 years of uh, this uh, prophecy. Oh, and that's just remarkable. I, you know, I always think of this story when I think of those situations in which we are hopelessly ensnared and trapped, and perhaps you think of some compulsive behavior, some obsessive uh, 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 tendency, trend in your life or some impossible relational problem perhaps with your spouse or your children or your employer or employee, whatever it may be and uh, there seems to be no way out and God moves in alongside and he says, it's alright, I'm with you I'm with you, everything's okay I'm going to take care of this greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world Relax, hold fast. If you don't hold fast, you won't uh, hold fast. You'll, you'll, you'll come apart at, at the seams. I'm able to do what needs to be done. Just trust me. Just rest. Just wait. See what I, what I do. There's a similar story in the book of Second Kings where Elisha and his servant were trapped in the city of Dothan. And the Syrian army, this is some years prior to this event... Syrian army encircled the city and there was no way out. Elisha had been tipping off the king of Israel to the movements of the Syrian army. 
so the king of king of Syria decided they had to take Elisha out. So they circled the city, all for his sake. He had no way out. He was trapped. His servant gets up and looks over the walls, and he and he, and he sees the Syrian army, and he panics. And Elisha yawns, and he says, "Now nah, he says there's there's more of us than there are of them." And then he prays, "Lord, open his eyes." And the Lord opens his eyes, and the servant of Elisha sees the angelic hosts encamped all around the city of Dothan, protecting them and. And the Syrian army was no threat. And I want you to understand that's true of you. It doesn't make any difference what your circumstances are or how trapped you feel. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And he's able to do exceeding abundantly above anything you could ever ask or think. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, now, wait a minute. There's got to be more to the story than that. Because everybody knows the Christmas story, Matthew 1. So let's uh, let's turn to that uh, that part of the Bible, Matthew chapter one. This is, of course, as everybody knows, the passage that Matthew quotes to establish the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin. This is Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus Christ, beginning with verse eighteen. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, when, uh, uh, when uh, in Luke's account... When the angel announced to Mary that she was uh, with child, her response was, how can this be? I've never known a man. So it's very clear that Mary was not expecting Messiah to be born of a virgin. If that was the expectation of all Jews at that time, it would immediately dawned on her that she was indeed the mother of of the Messiah. But her problem was, how can this be? I've not known a man. Now, Matthew goes on to explain, verse 20, now, this is, Matthew is centered on Joseph. After he, Joseph, had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. See, here's that formula again. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill, and the particular word that Matthew uses here suggests filling something out to the full, to its fullest extent. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And here he quotes Isaiah 7, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I say, what in the world is going on here? Because uh, clearly Isaiah is talking about a child who would be born in Ahaz's life, who before he was 12 uh, would be uh, the sign that uh, that these two armies were not a threat. And now Matthew quotes the same passage and he applies it to our Lord Jesus. So let me tell you what, what's going on here. Back in Isaiah 7. The word that Isaiah used for virgin is an ambiguous term. There are a number of words that he could have used. He could have used isha, which is just the word for woman. A woman will will conceive. It's also the word for wife. So that if he simply wanted to say to Ahaz, your wife's going to conceive, he probably would have said isha. 
There's another word that Isaiah could have used if he wanted to refer specifically to a virgin. It's the Hebrew word betula, which always in every place means virgin, a woman who's had no sexual experience. He could have used that word. And then there would have been no question. And then it would not have had any reference whatever to Ahaz, because Ahaz's wife was not a virgin. They already had a child. And uh, uh, this, this wouldn't, it wouldn't apply. The word he uses is a very, it's a different word. It's the word alma, which can mean a woman of marriageable age, either married or unmarried, and definitely has overtones of virginity in it. So uh, he used this uh, uh, sort of enigmatic word, and, and, and any pious Jew reading this story in Isaiah 7 would begin to ponder this. What's going on? What, what, what's this all about? Why didn't Isaiah use the more common term? Why would he use this term? This must be fulfilled again in someone else. And uh, it would dawn on them that that's exactly what the story of Ahaz and his little baby boy who was named Emmanuel, who was Hezekiah, who was a very god, a godly man, uh, at least in the early part of his reign, but is certainly not the once and coming king, not, not our Lord Jesus, not, not the Messiah. It's just sort of the rehearsal, sort of an illustration of what will eventually happen when a virgin really did conceive and bring forth a child. And he really was God with us. See, the 8th century was the uh, sort of the little picture, the vignette. The rehearsal, the metaphor, the first century when our Lord came, is the reality. And interestingly enough, the Jews, at least by the second century B.C., realized that there's something going on here. They pondered Isaiah 7. And when they translated this word, they used the Greek word parthenos, which can only mean virgin. You know the Parthenon, the house of the virgin uh, Athena in, in Athens. Uh, that word parthenos means, means virgin. And the Septuagint, the Greek translation, the second translation that was made of the Hebrew text, the first was Aramaic, the second was Greek. When they got to this portion, they translated it virgin because they realized that there was more here than, than met the eye. And, and Matthew said, this is how this whole thing is filled out to the full. A virgin, Mary, conceived, brought forth a child. We call him Jesus. But he is, in fact, in reality, God with us. Jesus was God made real and personal and understandable. Jesus was God incarnate in flesh. When we look at Jesus, we see exactly what, uh, what God is like. And do you know, he's still here. He's still here. We think of the incarnation as a once in a, a one time in history happening, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. In a sense, it was, and that God now only incarnates himself in, in you and me. That's how the enfleshment takes, takes place. But our Lord is just as real, just as near as he was in the days of his flesh. You know, we often think, my, it would have been nice to walk uh, walk with our Lord in the streets of, of Jerusalem and down the roads of Palestine and listen to him teach. Let me tell you, he is with you wherever you go. He's with you right now, wherever you're sitting. He's with you in your office and in your kitchen. 
and in your car and on the back 40 and wherever you are. He's with you, invisible, but just as real and just as, uh, uh, t- uh, just as tangible in a spiritual sense as he was, uh, as he was then. Uh, in the upper room, our Lord said something I've always found very interesting to the disciples. He's, he had told them he's going to go away, and they were really distressed. And our Lord said, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I will come again. And we read that text and we say, oh, he's talking about the second coming. No, he is not talking about the second coming. He talks about the second coming later. He's talking about his coming in the person of the Holy Spirit, who is, vis- who is invisible but very, very real. And Jesus says, I won't leave you orphans. I will come again. The world will not see me, but you will see me, he says. What? With, with the eyes of faith. And because I am living... You will live. He's living with you. Do you understand that? That's the source of your life. He's living with you. He's walking with you just as he walked with the disciples on the road to to Emmaus. You may not realize he's there, but he's just as real as he was in the days of his flesh. And uh, in the last part of that discourse in John 14, in verse 21, our Lord said to the disciples, He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me, and he that loves me will be loved by my Father, and we will love him, and we will make ourselves real to him. Now, do you understand what he means? Uh, The first thing we have to do, all of us, is to realize that he is there. He's there. No, No one else may take you seriously, but he does. He's there. Others may think that you're old and worn out and useless and in the way, but he he doesn't feel that way about you. Others, some may not love you because you don't look like the beautiful people on People magazine anymore, but but he does. He loves you, cares. He's there. He's present. Some may not call you and ask you to go out with them, but he does. Some may be embarrassed by the way you behave, but he he never is. You just have to know that he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. Once you have acknowledged his lordship, you are bonded to him for life. And though we may break his heart by our sin, and, and the relationship may seem awkward and strained because of, of our Unwillingness to deal with with our sin, but he never gives up on you. Never. And he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is God with you in the ultimate sense of that of that uh, of that word. Now what he wants us to do, I believe, is to ponder that fact. Just just realize it. That's what we've been learning from Isaiah 7, from Matthew 1. He's, he's Emmanuel. He's God with you. Think about Practice the presence of Christ. When you uh, wake up in the morning and you're, you're feeling gloomy, then just remind yourself that he, He's with you. He's crazy about you. He loves you like you wouldn't believe. He would do anything for you. He would die for you again today if that, uh, if that were necessary. Just practice His presence. He's there. He's God with you. And the other thing He wants you to do is to act on the basis of that truth. Act as though it's real. You wake up in the morning and you're all bummed out. You don't want to get out of bed. 
to realize he's right there in the sack with you. And he, he, he loves you and he cares about you. And, and, and you can get up and you can begin to serve your family or you can go off to work and you can, you can do what needs, needs to be done. Remember what Jesus said? He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. That's how we show our love for him. And uh, he says, my father will, will, you know, he'll pour that love all through our hearts. We'll begin to realize how much the father loves us. And he will manifest himself to us. In other words, he becomes more and more real as we begin to act upon the reality of his presence. He gets bigger and bigger and better. We come to see more of who he is and what he's like as we begin to take him at his, at his word. I want to close with one uh, illustration. I, I, I f- tried to find this thing this week, and I couldn't. It's uh, from the Narnia Tales, C.S. Lewis's uh, children's novels. I think it's Susan who uh, comes across Aslan, who's a picture, of course, of, of Jesus. And uh, she hadn't seen Aslan for a while, and she says to him, You're bigger. And he says, No, little one, you're older. And he, she says, You mean you're not bigger? And he says, no, little one, I don't, I, I don't get bigger. I can't get bigger. But with every year, as you grow older, I will seem to be bigger. Now, you see, that's what happens when you begin to act on the basis of the truth that God has given to us. I have come to discover here, awfully late in my life, that I have more than one emotion uh, I always knew that I got angry, but uh, most of my other emotions I had stuffed and denied to the point that I really was not aware of them. Carolyn kept telling me that I had emotions, but uh, I didn't believe it. But I've come to see the place that emotions play in understanding more of God. Someone explained it to me this way. He said emotions are like, uh, like the little light on our dashboard that warns us of trouble under the hood. You can cover up the light with a piece of masking tape, or you can beat it to death with a stick. But really what you should do is lift the hood up and look inside and see what's going on. And I'm coming to see that that's the part that emotions play. I I can't do anything about emotions. I can't control them. But if I wake up in the morning and I'm sad or I'm worried, then that's, that's the key to open the hood and see what's going on. And invariably it's because I've forgotten this fact that God's with me, that he loves me. That he's for me. That he will never leave me or forsake me. So um, I guess I just want to leave you with this one word. God is with us. Don't forget that fact. Let's pray. Father, I, I believe that the God of this world has successfully blinded our eyes. So that we cannot see the face of Christ. And uh, we forget that he is with us through everything, that we are not alone, we are not forgotten, we are not too small and insignificant to be seen and loved. And uh, we, we want to thank you this morning if that's true. Holding fast to that fact, fact helps us to hold fast. Uh, help us not to be like Ahaz and impose our own thinking and our own agenda and our own will on this uh, wonderful truth. Help us to realize how much we need you with us, how futile it is to act in the arm and in the strength and power of the flesh. And help us to be men and women who who trust you with all of our hearts. 
And we pray that in every circumstance of life, as we face these difficult, trying things, controlling elements and the controlling people and and the issues that make us feel trapped and encircled, the circumstances of life from which there seems to be no mistake, uh, no escape, to remember this one simple, single, important fact that you are with us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.